For the past several weeks, I have been trying to accumulate questions from a lot of people, and I've received a lot of questions through the help of many of you. Um, you've asked your friends and so forth and shared a thing on, on Facebook. And uh, the questions were, what, what would you ask God if you had a chance? What, what would you ask God if you had a face-to-face, a sit-down with them? Tell me what you'd ask. And uh, some of those questions have been really interesting to, to look at. And later this year or the first part of next year, we're going to have a sermon series on those questions. But here's what I have decided I've decided that a lot of the questions that probably we think we would ask, we would never really ask. Uh, not when we're really face-to-face in the presence of God. Some of the things that may seem like really big issues to us at the moment, probably then it, it won't matter at all. It'll be the farthest thing from our mind. There are questions that I sometimes, well, when we talk about that, you know, have you not heard people say, when I get to heaven, one of the things, one of the first things I'm going to, I'm going to look up God and I'm going to ask him and you can fill in the blank. We, we've probably all done that. Um, but realistically, many of those questions, questions that we have are, are trivial in nature with respect to the whole grand scheme of things. And I don't know that they'll make a whole lot of difference then. But here's what I want us to do this morning. I don't want to talk about questions that we might ask God. But I want to look at it from the other side, and I want to look at some questions that God has asked us. And not necessarily us, but in principle us. Um, but there are questions that he has asked specific people throughout time, and those questions still remain and they still echo in our ears today. And so I want us to look at some of those questions. If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it to Job chapter 38, and uh, this is kind of the backdrop for what I'm, I'm talking about this morning. There are times when God asks questions. And for God to ask you a question, you can probably guess that's not a really good thing for you. Or at least it will expose something that you're missing in your life. Job was a good, righteous man and was trying to serve God to the best of his ability and was doing a good job at it. God was proud of Job, but Job faced unbelievable pain and suffering, so much so that he wished he would have died, never been born. And if he had to be born, he wished he would have just died when he was born and and never lived to see the pain that he was having to endure. And when you look at what happened to him, you can understand those sentiments. There are things worse than death. And Job, I believe, was facing some of those things. And so... As he goes on and talks to his friends who were saying, Job, you've done something wrong. And he said, no, I haven't. And yes, you have. No, I haven't. Well, you had to have because these kind of things, these calamities don't befall people that are good people. Something you're hiding. You need to confess. And he kept saying, I haven't sinned. I'm not doing anything wrong. And the, I, I believe he reached a point in that defense of himself, that he actually, well, in defending himself, he failed to defend God in his actions. It became an indictment 
against God. Like if I'm so good and if I'm doing the right thing, well, what what is God doing? Is he, you know, what, what what's this all about? I can't explain this activity of God in light of the fact that I'm a good man. And he's letting these bad things happen. God, hello, where are you? You know, that's kind of the way Job was coming off toward the end. And so God said, I've had enough. And look at what he says in verse 38. Can you imagine being Job? Because then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Okay, so his his appearance to Job, he comes on the scene in the form of a tornado. Um, that's a little disconcerting to begin with, is it not? I mean, who just sits calmly as a tornado comes to you? And not only that, but now a voice of God comes out of this tornado And he said, who is this who counsels, who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who am I talking to here? Now prepare yourself like a man and I'm going to question you and you shall answer me. All right, Job, you think you have all these questions and you want to put me on the spot and demand an answer from me? Hey, I'm going to do the same to you now. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you're asking questions about things you have no idea, you have no knowledge of? And so he starts. Now, prepare yourself like a man. I'll I'll question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fasted? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted with joy? Or who shut the... And he just goes on and on. Fires questions for the next three chapters. He asks Job questions that are beyond his ability to answer. And leaves Job, I'm sure, jaw-dropped. There's no way you could answer. And you get to the end of the book in chapter 42 and Job finally answers and speaks. And he said, listen, I have been foolish. I have talked about things that I do not understand and they're too wonderful for me to know. And um, so he, he learned his lesson. But in that sense, God asked Job a question. And so it wasn't for knowledge purposes, but it was to make a point with him. And that's what I want us to do. God doesn't ask questions to obtain knowledge. He he is all-knowing. He doesn't learn anything. He already knows. But he does ask questions for a purpose. And so let's look at uh, four questions this morning that the Lord has asked and then make some application by way of principle to our own lives and the first one comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And he asked this question twice in this chapter. And here's the question. It's found in verse 9 and also in verse 13. What are you doing here? That's the question. What are you doing here? You see, Elijah was hunted by King Ahab. He was on the run. In fact, Jezebel had killed all the prophets of God that she could get her hands on. There was a man who had hidden a hundred of them, put them in two different caves, 50 in each cave, and he was feeding them bread and water. But they were in hiding because, man, Jezebel was a wicked queen. 
And, and Elijah comes to this prophet and he says, listen, I want you to go to your master and tell him that I'm here. And, and this man says, what? You know what's going to happen. I don't want to do You're sentencing me to death by doing that because here's what's going to happen. I know that God is with you, and so I'm going to go to the king and say, hey, I just ran into Elijah. He said to meet you over here, and when he gets over there, you're not going to be there. The Lord will take you away, and then Ahab will come back and kill me for sending in a false report. And so what? what is it? What have I done against you? I've tried to hide the, the remaining prophets. I've been good. I've been faithful. I've been loyal. Why are you doing this and going to get me killed? And Elijah said, listen, I promise you go tell tell the king that I am here and I will be here when he arrives. And so he goes and tells the king, and and they have this. Uh, when the king sees him, he says, "Oh, there's the guy. You're the troublemaker in Israel." And he said, "No, I'm not. You are." And he said, "I want you to get all the all the prophets together, uh, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of another false god. There were 850 of them in total." And you remember they had that showdown on Mount Carmel. He asked the people to stand with him, but they wouldn't make a commitment. They were afraid. And so they had this showdown, and he taunted them as they prayed to their God to bring down fire from heaven. It didn't work. And, and finally, Elijah prays, and God sends down fire, consumes the sacrifice. And all the people are now with him because, obviously, the God of the Bible is the true God. And he said, take these prophets, take them down to the brook down there, and kill them all. And they were put to death. And it was a great victory for righteousness that day. The, the truth of God was upheld, and the <clears throat> false religion of idolatry was exposed to be false. It was a great day. And he stood up to the king. Well, when Jezebel heard what had done, what had happened, she again said, let the same thing happen to me if I don't kill him in the same way. And so he, he fled. Where, why would he flee from Jezebel when he just stood up to Ahab and 850 false prophets? His courage is gone. And he flees, and he, and he on the way, <clears throat> as he's fleeing, an angel is sent to give him food. And, and twice this angel insists that he eat, because his strength wasn't what it ought to be. And he found himself in a cave. <clears throat> and it's there where God says, what, what are you doing here? And he asks him that question twice. What are you doing here? Let, let me make a side note, and then I'll make the, the, the main point that I want to make. <clears throat> An interesting side note is this. While Elijah was basically running from his duty and running from God and thinking everything was bad when it wasn't as bad as he thought it was, God was still caring for him. He sent an angel to feed him, and twice this angel ministered to him. But it didn't mean God was with him in the sense that he approved of what he was doing. God was taking care of him, but he did not approve of his decision to go sit and mope in a cave. I have heard people time and time again 
in, in the years that I've been preaching, <clears throat> flee from God or do something that is against God's will, but because of circumstances in life, they argue that God must be in favor of it. You know, oh yes, I, I left my first wife. I, I, we didn't get along and, and she was just kind of holding me back. And, and you know, God wants me to be happy. And I found this other girl and, and I married her. And since that time, God has blessed us so much as if you can disregard God's will because there are blessings you're receiving in life. It's, it doesn't work that way. You may still, listen, Jesus said God causes, uh, the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. God blesses people who are doing His will and who aren't doing His will. And so the fact that good things may result from you doing wrong doesn't mean that God approves of the wrong that you're doing. Elijah was running from God and going to pout in a cave, which was not God's will for his life, and God still was blessing him with things that were physical in nature. It didn't mean he approved of what he was doing. But here's the main point that I want you to see. His location, I'm going to get my throat clear here in a minute. His location in this cave was a demonstration of a lack of faith. And so God says, what are you doing here? Shouldn't you be out celebrating? Shouldn't you be out rounding up the prophets of God and doing something great? I mean, you've just had a great victory and here you are sitting in a cave. What's that all about? What are you doing here? Can can we get direct here for a second? Can there ever be times when God would look at our lives and if we could hear him audibly speak to us, he might say to us, what are you doing here? Why are you here? This is not a place for you. Might our entertainment choices ever cause God to say if he could speak to us, and if he would speak to us, of course he could if he wanted to, but he doesn't in that way anymore. But if God spoke to us, might he say, what what are you doing here? What What are you, why would you be here? This is so inconsistent with what I've called you to do and to be. Maybe that's not the issue, but, but let me ask you this question. Looking over here, we might have 380 folks here, something in that neighborhood. I'm going to stand up here tonight, and I don't think I'll see that many. I know that there are reasons why some won't be here, but I also know that there are reasons others won't be here. And again, if God spoke to us, he might say to us as we're kicked back in our living rooms and our easy chairs, what, what are you doing here? You see, there, there's a time and a place. There, there are times when it's wrong to be in places that are right. They're morally right. But the timing's wrong. And the reason behind the decision to be there is wrong. There's nothing wrong with going in a cave. But going in a cave when you should be rejoicing with your brethren... Going in a cave because of a lack of faith, that, that, that was wrong. And so God asked the question, why are you here? Not assembling with the saints, there are reasons that that can happen. Sitting in your living room, there, that's nothing wrong with that. 
But if it's due to a lack of faith, if it's due to an undeveloped love for God that uh, we show our appreciation to Him, if it's due to uh, other priorities that take precedence over God, then I think God might ask us yet today, what are you doing here? It's a good question, something to ponder and to think about. Here's a second question that is asked. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. And in Luke 12, verse 26, Jesus says, In which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If then you who are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? He asked the question, why are you anxious? Or, well, why are you worrying? Good question. And the point that he's making is that you don't accomplish anything through worry. Um, he uses the illustration of, of making yourself taller. Can, can you, by thinking and worrying and wishing and, and hoping, can you make yourself any taller by doing that? I mean, what if I sat down all day and I just said, grow one more age. I, I always wanted to be 6'8". Grow just a little taller, little taller. Grow, grow, grow. If I sat down and I thought like that all day long, is it going to make me any taller? No. You can't even add an inch to your size, to, to, your, to your heights. And if you can't do something as simple as that through worry then why do you think worrying about bigger issues is going to get you anywhere? Well, we can't change things through worry. So he says, why, why are you worrying? I've known people that wanted to be different physically than what they are. And probably if I said, is there anybody here that would like to change anything? Probably everybody's hand would go up. I'd like to be a little taller. I'd like to be a little shorter. I'd like to be a little skinnier. I'd like to be a little heavier, you know, just on, on, on down the line. We all have changes to make, but we can't accomplish a single one of those changes by sitting and fretting about it. Doesn't happen that way. So if we can't change these little things through worrying What's the sense in worrying about big things that really matter in life? If I can't change the little, I sure can't change the big things. So don't worry. Might Jesus come to us? Might the Lord come to us and say, what, what are you, what are you worrying about? You can't change anything through this. And, and might he remind us of what he says in Romans 8 and verse 28? Now we know not hope, but we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. I have, not only can I not change things through worry, but I also have a promise that can help me to keep from worrying. God is on my side. And even the bad things that happen in my life, God can redeem and make them work for good. So that should pretty much help me to be worry-free. Why are you anxious? What are you doing here? Two good questions God asked. Look at a third one. It comes from Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Acts chapter 9. And this is the account of the conversion of Saul. <clears throat> and in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, you remember Saul was on his journey to Damascus and he heard 
this voice, there was a bright light, he fell to the ground, and then this voice said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What would you have thought? Number one, Saul, he had not been persecuting Jesus personally. Jesus has been dead. He's been persecuting the church. If you go back one chapter, you see that he was making havoc of the church by going in the homes and, and taking men and women and putting them in prison if they claimed to be a follower of Jesus. But he had never done anything personally against Jesus. This is his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He hadn't met him before. But Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that question, here's what I learned. When you hurt the church, you hurt Jesus. When you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. That's a lesson I need to be reminded of. Sometimes we forget that the church is a divine institution. Sometimes we forget that it is the, the product of the mind of God and the wisdom of God. And it's not like the Lions Club and the Rotary Club and everything else that somebody just came up with to do some good deeds. This is a divine body that Jesus instituted. And it makes it completely... Di- I don't have the right to criticize and to belittle and run down all the things that I don't like. I don't have a right to put my opinions and my desires above the good of the church. I don't have a right to get on Facebook and belittle one another and to talk about this and that and to to air personal agendas and grievances and, and let the whole world know about it. When we do that, we hurt the church. And when we hurt the church, we hurt Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25? He was talking about good works in that particular case. But he said, in that you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. When you do good to people, you're doing good to me. And when you fail to do good, well, you're failing to do good to me. And the same thing is true with reference to the Lord's church. When I do harm to the church through my words, through my actions through the attitudes that people see me display, when I hurt the church, I hurt Jesus. It's not isolated. It's not unconsequential. It's not my right as an American to to just, you know, have this free speech and I can just say whatever I want whenever I want to whomever I want and however I want. Jesus doesn't and isn't ruled by our Constitution. This is the body of Christ we're talking about. And I need to make sure that the way I behave within it and the way I talk about it and and behave with regard to it is in a way that will not hurt Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And then the last question this morning is this. And it comes from John chapter 5 and verse 6. Jesus says to a man who was lame and who wanted or tried to get in the water, there was a pool at Bethesda, and um, once every once in a while an angel would stir the waters, according to uh, the text there. 
And uh, whoever got in the water first after it had been stirred would be healed. And this man didn't have anybody to help him get down in the water. So Jesus comes to him and he says, um, do you want to be made well? What kind of a question is that? Surely he wants to be made well. But you know what? I think it's interesting that the man didn't answer yes or no. He made an excuse. Jesus said, do you want to be made well? Well, that's a yes or no question. But he said, well, I I don't have anybody to take me down into the water. He made an excuse to a question of, do you want to be made well? Does that happen today? Listen, if I were to tell you today that there is good news, that you can be well, you can be healed from your sin-sick disease, that if you will turn from sin, be baptized into Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins, you can be made well. Do you want to be made well? There, no doubt, every Sunday are people in assemblies that get asked that same question all over our land. Do you want to be made well? And they have excuses. They don't answer yes or no. And they leave the building still lost when who would... Who would walk away? If you were this man and Jesus came to you and said, do you want to be made well? Yes, that's the right answer. Not an excuse for not doing it before, but yes, I do. And Jesus would heal him. Today, I wonder if Jesus asked this question to you today. Do you want to be well? Do you want to be made well from sin? Do you want your soul to be cleansed by the blood of Christ? I can hear some maybe maybe saying, well, I've got these friends. It would mean I'd have to change this. um, I I don't know if I believe this. I I don't know if, uh, do we really have to get wet? I I don't know. And, And we have all kind of excuses. But back to his question, do you want to be made well? I hope the answer is yes. Yes, I have a problem with sin. I, 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 I don't want to stand before God condemned. Yes, I want to be made well. And he tells us how to do that. In Acts 2, he tells those who have never come to Christ, he said, you need to believe in Jesus, turn from your sin and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And that's still true today. If you're not yet a Christian, that's what you need to do. And God will keep his promise. He'll make you well. And to those who have already done that, but they've gone back into a life of sin and and they need to repent. In Acts 8, they're told to repent and pray for forgiveness. And there may be someone here today who's a Christian, but they've gone back to a lifestyle of sin. And um, do you want to be made well? If the answer is yes, then you need to repent and pray. For forgiveness. You see, these are four questions, and there are hundreds that God has asked in Scripture that are worth consideration. They weren't spoken to us directly, but in principle, they they do address us where we live today. And uh, in light of the fact that God cares for us, that He has provided for us, that he invites us to be saved. I want to close this lesson with one more question. 
And it comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 3, where the writer of the book of Hebrews said, How shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? How can we say no to God in light of what Jesus did for us and in in light of how clear he has revealed what we need to do and as, as easy as it is to accomplish, I mean, he's not asking us to swim the English Channel. He's not asking us to climb to the peak of Everest. He's asking us to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you've done that, he's asking you to turn from sin and pray for forgiveness. That's what he's asking. In light of all of that, how can we stand before God and say, No, I never did any of that. I, I, I don't know why. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, I invite you to come uh, to the front as we stand together and sing this song.